are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me here today. Uh, this is a Thursday afternoon. It's time for our live question and answer time, and today is a pretty special day for our live Q&A because it's a giveaway day, and we're going to give away... Look, I don't want to be... It's really an amazing book. I'm going to give away a book that was written in... Come on, I wrote it down right here. 1893 by uh, William Taylor, Bishop of Africa. It's in wonderful shape. It's got great graphics. I'm going to show a little bit more about this later. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the rules later. Uh, I'm going to wait maybe till a little more people come online for this. But what we're going to do simply is just talk about this book. I'm going to give this away. If you want to enroll in the drawing, it's going to be a completely random drawing today. Uh, look at the details. What you need to give us is basically your name, where you're from. Look, we'd love it if you subscribe, but you don't have to. Uh, and then we also uh, require that you hang around till the end when we announce the winner. So I'll read the official rules after I do our lead question here this morning or this afternoon. Uh, but we're going to have this very special giveaway again in celebration of the fact that just last Saturday it was we crossed that 100,000 subscriber threshold. Praise the Lord for that. Okay, let me talk today about today's lead question. Our normal pattern uh, on a Thursday afternoon, we begin with a lead question that comes in from various sources. Sometimes our lead questions come in from our TWR360 audience. We want to welcome everybody part of the Transworld 360, Transworld Radio audience. Uh, TWR360 does a wonderful job reaching the world, both with their shortwave radio uh, work, which has been going on for decades, and now their online ministry, TWR360. Uh, so we want to welcome everybody who's joining us from that great audience. And um, our lead question today uh, comes from Nathan, has asked this question. Uh, he just asked a simple question, was Jesus a communist? Um, and the answer to that question is actually pretty simple here. Um, Jesus was not a communist, and I'll explain why in a few moments. Now, first of all, maybe I should explain just for a moment what communism is, and I can do that with just a few quick points on this. And folks, look, I I'm not a political scientist. I do have a university degree in history and an interest in history, so you learn some of these things through that, but I I'm not meaning this to be exhaustive. And I understand that some of these points could be contested. The other thing I also understand about communism is that uh, people claim it differs in degrees from place to place. But let me just give four quick points to communism. Okay, number one, that there should be no private ownership of property, that everything would be held collectively by the people. That's number one. Number two, that the state, the government, holds, plans, spends, distributes, it builds in the name of the collective, the people. You see, in a communistic system, they would say that the people own everything, the people run everything, the people plan everything, but obviously they would say the people do it through the government, through the state. Number three, 
a basic principle in communism is that every person should work according to their ability and every person should receive according to their need. And then fourth, the idea of communism is that workers won't be exploited by owners who only care about profits. So those four basic things, kind of a quick little background, again, very short, very incomplete, but I think those are four kind of beginning points with communism. I want to compare this understanding of communism to what Jesus lived and taught and what the Bible teaches us. And I can say without reservation, Nathan and anybody else who's asking this question, Jesus Christ was not a communist. And I'll give you six things that I think Jesus would oppose in communism. Again, I don't mean this to be an exhaustive list. Maybe somebody else come up with six more. But here's six things that kind of quickly came to mind uh, about what Jesus would oppose in communism. Number one, Jesus would oppose communism because he affirmed the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, which clearly affirms the right of private property, especially in the command not to steal. Uh, We may be familiar with that from Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. Well, Jesus emphatically affirmed the Old Testament law. I I want to read you from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Jesus said this, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, Jesus consciously affirmed the Old Testament law. Now, we do, of course, understand there were parts of the law that he fulfilled, significant parts. He fulfilled the sacrificial system. He fulfilled the priesthood. He fulfilled the rituals and the ceremonies. But the moral law of the Old Testament, in principle, Jesus affirmed absolutely. Now, in addition to the Old Testament, which clearly gives a right to private property, The New Testament also condemns theft, which again implies the right to private property. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, the Apostle Paul said this, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So again, the the Bible doesn't have this concept that nobody owns anything and everything is owned in common by the collective. The Bible gives individual stewardship. You could call it a sub-ownership under God. Uh, the Bible gives those properties, those, those things, those rights, that stewardship to people. That's the first thing that I think Jesus would oppose about communism. Number two, Jesus would oppose communism because the Bible, which carries the message of Jesus, <laughs> we believe that this whole book, the Bible, is the message of Jesus. It tells us that the family is the main economic unit for society, not the state. You see, the whole law of Moses distributed land according to family, and land was held in trust by the family, and land was passed on to the family, not to the state. Now, families had obligations to support the state. There was the tithe, there was the offerings, there were the special offerings, of course. 
But the main economic unit of the theocracy that God established in Israel was the family. Now, this carries over to the New Testament as well. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 is a remarkably strong statement, part of the instructions for the support of widows, where Paul stated that widows should not receive the financial support of the church if they had family that could support them. Uh, that's pretty strong, don't you think? The, the obligation of the family to be the main economic unit in a society and to support that was so strong, Paul said that the church shouldn't support widows if their family could support them. The first Timothy chapter five, verse eight says this, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a very strong statement. The, the commitment to provide for your own household. Again, that's making the family the main economic unit in a society, in a culture. That's number two. Number three, Jesus would oppose communism because the message of the Bible is of radical generosity and sharing among believers, but in voluntary free will giving. Friends, under communism, under taxation, that is not voluntary free will giving. There is a big difference between koinonia, that's community and sharing, and communism. And one of the great differences is coercion. There's a very interesting case in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, I believe it is, where two, there's radical generosity going on in the early church because it's needed. There's a huge influx of people who uh, became Christians on the day of Pentecost. They need to be supported. There's generosity to support them. And two people, a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, they acted as if they gave the entire proceeds of a sale of land to the church, but they didn't. The, the bottom line is this. Peter told Ananias, while it was yours, you could do with it as you please. I think that's a very important principle. Ananias could do what he wanted to. Now, he could obey God or disobey God in what he did with it, but it was up to him. Again, the message of the Bible is one of radical generosity and sharing, but voluntary free will giving. And that's not how it is in a communist system or in states that just simply have high, high taxation. The difference is, again, coercion. Okay, number four. Jesus would oppose communism because the amount of state power and coercion and force necessary for a planned economy goes against the biblical principle of freedom and of liberty. Again, one of the principles of communism is that uh, theoretically the people own everything, but the people run everything through the collective, through the state. But the state has to exert a huge amount of power over the individual and over communities in order to implement its plans, which supposedly it's doing all in the name of the people. You, you can't have that kind of force, that kind of coercion, that kind of state power without running against the very strong biblical principle of freedom of liberty. The proclamation of liberty is a huge idea in the scriptures. And it's for freedom that Jesus Christ has set us free. 
Now, I understand there's a legitimate debate to have among Christians about the balance between freedom and security or the balance between freedom and equality. But the totalitarian state required to make communism work is, in my opinion, far out of bounds in this debate. That's far more authority to any government that God would want to give. Friends, there's a reason why communist states have been atheistic and have been violent, persistent persecutors of Christianity and other religions for that matter. It's because they will allow no other God. The state is absolute. and It's just a natural outflow from communism. Number five, Jesus would oppose communism because it's built on envy or it quickly degenerates into envy. The anger, bitterness, and hatred because someone else has more than I have. Friends, envy is a terrible sin and contentment is a true Christian virtue. Do you know that as far as the Bible tells us, the main motivation that the religious leaders handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate was because of envy. They were envious of Jesus' popularity and his sway with the crowd. In Romans chapter 1, envy is included among such sins as sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. And then it says, full of envy. Romans chapter 13, verse 13 says that... Envy is a sin right up in uh, revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, strife and envy. Whereas, as opposed to envy, the Bible teaches that we should learn contentment, going so far as to say, and I go, this is a challenging command. I'm not saying this is an easy command, but it's what the Bible says. First Timothy chapter six, verse eight, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Um, more than that is often, or a demand for more than that is often rooted in envy. Okay, and then now number six, Jesus would oppose communism because of its terrible history. Friends, if you love people, if you love humanity, you should hate communism. In the 20th century, some researchers say that the communist states I'm talking about the Soviet Union and its satellite states, communist China, North Korea, Cambodia, Vietnam, Cuba, and such, that these communist states of the 20th century were responsible for the deaths of up to a hundred million people. Now, I understand there are people who dispute that figure. I got an email once from a guy and a nice guy, sincere guy, and all that I can tell. But, but he said, no, 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 it's not nearly that. Friends, if you were to cut that number in half, it's still a horrific number. Even well, it wasn't a hundred million, it was only fifty million. Even if you said it was only a tenth, it was only ten million. Friends, I'm telling you, nothing, certainly no government, has murdered its own people as communism has. And all this murder did not make for paradise on earth, but for nations that were giant terror camps or prison camps for much of their population. Oh, I don't deny there were some people who had it good under communism. I don't deny that there are some people who so appreciate the security that such a state offers that they prefer that. But 
by and large, these are terror camps or prison camps on a national level. So friends, for those six reasons, I would say categorically, Jesus Christ would not approve of communism. He would not be a communist. Jesus would oppose communism because he affirmed the Old Testament and the New Testament, what it says about private property. Jesus would oppose communism because of the Bible carrying the main message of Jesus tells us that the family is the main economic unit for society and not the state. Jesus would oppose communism because the radical generosity and sharing among believers is to be voluntary, not coercive. Jesus would oppose communism because the amount of state power and coercive force that it gives the state. Jesus would oppose communism because it's either built on envy or quickly degenerates into envy. Then finally, Jesus would oppose communism because of its terrible, terrible history. Now, let me just conclude with this. What kind of economic system would Jesus approve of? Let me give you some quick thoughts. When I say quick thoughts, friends, I drew this up in just a few moments. Now, I, no doubt there's much more to say on this, but, but let me just give you some of my quick thoughts on the kind of economy Jesus would approve. Number one, it would be an economy that affirmed the basic economic unit of the family. Number two, it would be an economy biased towards freedom more than state control and coercion or the control of monopolies and cartels. Yes, we understand you need to have those things controlled, absolutely, but there would be a bias towards freedom. Third, it would be a productive economy that lifted families and individuals out of abject poverty. Number four, it would be an economy of opportunity where hard work was genuinely rewarded and corruption, bribes, and dishonesty were punished. And then number five, it would be an economy that encouraged generosity. Uh, I think we could probably think of a lot more having to do with the kind of economy that Jesus would approve of, but I think those are five just kind of general principles. Okay, now we need to go back to something now. And we need to go back to our giveaway for today. So let me read the rules. We are giving away today this book. And I mean this book, the book I'm holding in my hand. I have another copy of it behind me, but I bought a special copy that's actually nicer than the copy I own myself. And I'm going to give away this book today to somebody who's tuning in right now in our live audience. And again, we're doing this in celebration of the fact that just a few days ago, last Saturday, we reached a milestone, 100,000 subscribers. Look, I understand that in the world of YouTube, there's lots and lots of YouTube accounts that have way more than 100,000 subscribers. Let me put it this way. My friend, Mike Winger, is not looking over his shoulder at David Guzik in the Enduring Word YouTube channel. I get that. But still, it's a nice accomplishment for us, and we want to celebrate it and invite you to win this book. So to bless someone, we're hosting this giveaway. The prize is this hardcover edition of The Story of My Life by William Taylor. And to enter, this is what you need to do. Type your location, country, state, city, whichever you prefer, into the live chat. And we hope you've already subscribed. You can subscribe, but look, I mean, as you please. We will announce on the video and the live chat when the entries are closed. 
That's going to be about 10 minutes before the end of today's program, about a half hour from now. The winner is going to be randomly selected and will be announced at the end of today's Q&A. So you have to stick around to the end of the show to see if you've won. If you're viewing the TWR 360 channel, please feel free to stop by our YouTube channel to enter. The official rules are posted in the video description. And as always, you can submit your questions today during the live chat. Now, I do just want to add one other thing. Um, if the person that we draw their name isn't around at the end, we'll give it a few minutes to see if they respond. But if you don't respond, if you don't get back to us, because we're going to need an email address from you, we're going to need a postal address. You have to be able to give us a valid postal address. We need a place to send this. Uh, if we don't have those things, then uh, we'll just give it away to somebody else. And if it doesn't work out this week, we'll have to do it next week. But uh, this has worked in the past. We hope it'll work today. We want to give it to a random viewer in our YouTube audience. Now, I, I know I got to get to your questions, and I will in just a moment. But I also need to tell you something about this book. The Story of My Life by William Taylor, Bishop of Africa. You know, I'm kind of fascinated by these men that are somewhat forgotten, women as well, uh, by the church. But William Taylor is probably a man that most of you have never heard of. I never heard of him until I ran across this book. He was an amazing Methodist preacher and missionary of the 19th century. William Taylor was born in Virginia in 1821. He was converted at 20 years of age. A year or so later, he began to work with the Baltimore Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church. And he was an itinerant preacher for seven years. But then he followed the gold rush to California to minister to the many people moving to the West Coast. He didn't have a church hall to meet in, so he used a wooden box for a platform and he began preaching on the wharf in San Francisco, gathering a congregation to him. In California, they called him the street preacher. But overseas, he became known as California Taylor. In both Canada and the eastern U.S., Taylor had a first-hand experience of the mighty 1858-59 revival in the U.S. And while in Canada, he was the guest of a doctor who told him of the great spiritual need in Australia. Taylor prayed about it. And he went, leaving California in 1862. He arrived in Melbourne, Australia in 1863 and began his ministry in the Methodist congregations in the area. He had remarkable ministry in Victoria, Tasmania, New South Wales, Queensland. Between 1863 and 1865, he saw more than 6,000 converts in all that work. In 1865, he saw in the, world, in the city of Sydney, Crowds of anywhere from 10,000 to 17,000 people and great work of evangelism and revival. He went to South Africa uh, from Australia in 1865 and he arrived in Cape Town and began preaching in the Wesleyan chapels all over South Africa. The Methodist congregations grew 40% in two years. The Zosha speaking people of Africa gave William Taylor the name Isagunui. Sivatuyo, the blazing firebrand. They were impressed with the man who had broad shoulders and a long flowing beard. He stood more than six feet tall. Now, let me show you one more thing about William Taylor. I want to show you a picture of this man. This is from this book, a little screenshot from the book right there. 
William Taylor. That's sort of the dedication page. Uh, just look at this man. Look at his face. That's the man who wrote this book. And then he has an amazing dedication page as well. Uh, what he says on that dedication page is fascinating. And I think at some time later, I'm going to do a special video just on William Taylor and this book and the dedication page. All right, with that, we are going to get back to our live chat. Uh, we're going to get to the questions here. And um, let me see if I got everything underway to do this. Okay, here we go. Um, from Junebug. If we have the gift of tongues, how does using this gift in our private prayer time edify us? Privately, there's no interpretation as opposed to the proper use in public where God calls for an interpreter. Well, Junebug, that's a great question. Um, what is the edification? What is the benefit of the gift of tongues? if it can't be understood, if there's no interpretation. Here's what you need to understand. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks unto God and not unto man. Even if a tongue is interpreted in a congregational setting, then it's still a matter of uh, that word that's interpreted is directed to God and not to man. A prayer, a praise, an intercession, a, a declaration of honor and glory to God. The bottom line is it's addressed to God and not to man. Here's the benefit of speaking in tongues or praying in tongues, whatever you would say. It's the Holy Spirit's ability to pray in us and through us beyond the limits of our ability to articulate or understand. It is a form. I'm not going to say it's the only form, but it's a form through which the Spirit intercedes through us, as the Bible speaks of. Listen, if somebody comes to me and asks, uh, hey, uh, would you lay hands on me and pray that I receive the gift of tongues? I always ask them, well, why do you want the gift? Sometimes people want the gift of tongues to prove something. They, they want to prove something to themselves. They, they want to prove something to somebody else. That's not a good reason to seek the gift of tongues. What, what I tell them is this. I, I ask them a question. I say, have you ever felt limited in your ability to pray, to praise, to intercede? Have you ever felt that there's more in your heart than you could articulate? Things in your mind that you just can't get that you just feel limited in your ability to communicate with God. You now, when I ask that question to people, sometimes they say, no, I, I've never really felt that way. I say, well, when you do, then let's pray and see if God would give you the gift of tongues. If they do say, yes, I say, well, let me pray for you and let's see if God would give you that gift. Junebug, the gift of tongues is a unique thing among the spiritual gifts in that it edifies the individual by being some, a way that enables the individual believer to pray or to praise, to speak to God and not man in a way that goes beyond the individual's understanding. I hope that's helpful for you there. Okay, let me go on here to the next question by Brittany, uh, when is it appropriate to call someone a false teacher? Okay, Brittany, uh, let me, uh, let me um, 
Well, okay. I'll tell you what I was going to say first. I was going to say, when they teach something false, but that's not really fair. Uh, Brittany, if somebody teaches something that we believe is wrong, you, you just have to use some gradation. For example, what I just said right now about the gift of tongues, there are many people in the body of Christ, many people that I would respect otherwise, who would say, David, you're a false teacher for teaching that. The gift of tongues has passed away. You're false for teaching that. They would say, David Guzik, you are a false teacher. Now, of course, I would disagree with them. Maybe I could turn around and say, no, you're a false teacher because you have um, uh, said that the gifts of the Spirit passed away with the apostles. You're a cessationist. You're the false teacher. I don't think in a situation like that, Areas where there is legitimate disagreement among believers. I don't believe in situations like that. That there's much profit in pointing fingers and changing uh, accusations of being a false teacher. Even though we would say they are teaching some false things or things that there are wrong. I think that we should reserve that title, false teacher, for people who teach things that are seriously wrong. There are errors that are dangerous and serious. Now, some people would say, what I believe about the gift of tongues is dangerous. And they'd say, well, whatever. If you want to call me a false teacher, go right ahead. My conscience is clear before God, and, and, and my understanding, I think, of the scriptures is clear before God as well. But I would say that we should reserve that for more serious errors, and I would reserve the next category of somebody being a heretic for teaching things that if those things are believed, the person will not go to heaven. I think that's a heavy thing to call somebody a heretic. So I, in my mind, again, Brittany, you're just asking me, so I'm explaining to how I kind of order it in my mind. I would say there's wrong teaching. Hey, you're not a false teacher, but you teach some wrong things. So there's wrong teaching. Then there's being a false teacher. That's obviously a step up. Maybe I should be going down instead of up, but whatever. And then the final category would be a heretic, someone who they are teaching error so serious that if someone believes that error, their soul is in peril. So, Brittany, that's the way that I order it. Wrong teaching, false teachers, heretics. And I kind of use it as a graduated scale. There, there might be some disagreement among people as to where those lines are drawn, but as a general category, that's how I would explain it. Okay, next question comes from Ben Haezer, who says, how do you view 2 Chronicles chapter 19 with New Testament teaching on love your enemies from Matthew chapter 5? 2 Chronicles 19 verse 2 says this, and Jehu, the son of Hananiah, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Well, I think we're talking, Ben Haezer, we're talking here with Jehu and Jehoshaphat about a different category here. Uh, Jehoshaphat was a king. Jehu would become the next king over the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, both of these were wicked men. Uh, I often say that the kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes, never had a good king. They had one king who was almost good, and Jehu was the one who was almost good. Um, but he wasn't good. 
But what you have here are leaders in a culture, leaders in a society being used by God as instruments of judgment. God, and if you read the text, uh, both in Kings and in Chronicles, God raised up Jehu to be his instrument of judgment against Jehoshaphat. And I know this bothers us sometimes, and I get why it bothers us. We're uncomfortable with that. And I would not believe anybody who came to me today and said that they personally, you know, not as a police officer, not as a judge, not as, you know, some other office of authority, but just as an individual, just a guy on the street, I would, that God had appointed them to be an instrument of judgment against another person. But these weren't just guys off the street. These were kings and high government officials. They were people called to be God's instruments for righteousness and justice. Now, it is unrighteous for a judge to let the guilty go free. It is right for a judge to punish the wicked. Now, to punish the wicked in proper portion, to, to, to do it with proper assessment of the crime and the law and all the rest, of course, it has to be done properly. But a judge that refuses to punish the wicked, that is a wicked judge. So, Ben, I would just put this in the context of judgment, God's judgments. And when it comes to executing God's judgments, the person who holds back from executing a judgment that God has appointed them to execute, again, we're not talking about the guy in the street. We would be talking in our day and age, a police officer, a, a judge, a district attorney. When a person holds back from executing that judgment, they're doing evil before the Lord. They should have a hatred, so to speak, of that sin and a zeal to punish it. Jehu is that man of zeal, but later on he went off the rails in his own way. Hope that's helpful for you there. Next one comes from uh, Haripsimi. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, how does one deal appropriately with spiritual warfare? It seems like the more I get involved in ministry, the more severe and frequent these attacks are becoming. Hipsimi, I can sympathize with you, and many other people can. Um, it seems for many people that once they get serious about living for the Lord, once they get serious about serving the Lord, then they will note a surge of spiritual opposition against them. Now, if you try to look at this from the viewpoint of Satan, our enemy, and of course, when we say Satan, we're not necessarily speaking of him directly, but of his works, of his agencies. Maybe it's some sub-demon down on the 15th level that we're dealing with, but we, we would just say it, you know, under the heading of Satan. If you understand Satan's strategy, he sees a person who can do damage to his kingdom, to Satan's kingdom. He sees a person who can be used of the Lord to do some significant things. So it would make sense for Satan to push back against that person as hard as he could. Now, something else we know about Satan is that he's not God. He is a finite being. And what that means is, among other things, Satan has limited resources. 
Now, if you have unlimited resources, you can push against people all day long. You, you don't have to take one resource from another place to put it another place. No, you, you can do it everywhere. But, but Satan has limited resources. He's not God. Therefore, and I wouldn't state this as some absolute spiritual law, but I would say it's a general principle. When we display to the demonic realm that we, God helping us, standing in the strength of Jesus Christ with his armor upon us, with all of those things, when we will not be shaken from our standing that God gives us to stand in, then the demons will lessen their attacks and put their resources someplace else because they have limited resources. They, they, it would be unusual, let's say, for them to put their resources into something that didn't really benefit their cause. So, Ripsy, get people praying for you. I'll try to remember to pray for you later today. Um, stand strong. And in the steadfastness of the Lord, being strong in the Lord and the power is might, equipped with the full armor of God as described in Ephesians 6, stand. And when it's established before the devil and all his angels that you will stand, I think something happens in the spiritual realm uh, and Satan will lessen his attack because there's something in it that shows him it won't work. Again, I, I can't say that that's some kind of absolute spiritual law, but I don't shy away from saying it's certainly a general principle that I've seen and experienced. Next from Char says, was Solomon playing the devil's advocate, so to speak, with his under the sun viewpoint, or did he really believe it at that point in his life? Okay, uh, Char, I'll tell you how I understand this. As Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, he's playing the devil's advocate. But earlier in his life, he lived aspects of it. But by the time he actually sat down to write Ecclesiastes, he had lived it, he had seen it, and now he's writing it sometimes from that perspective, and ultimately he comes to the truth at the very end of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes that he's learned that life is lived more than in that under-the-sun perspective. But God will draw every work into judgment. So, uh, that's how I would explain it. Next question uh, from Ryan. Pastor David, why did Jonathan have to die? Well, Ryan, look, I, all I can do is speculate on it, which I'm happy to do. I'm happy to speculate on this one with you. But um, my speculation as to why Jonathan had to die is simply this, is he would have been the successor to Saul. And if he did not die, even if Jonathan refused the crown, which I believe he would have, because earlier in his life, he took the robe, he took the crown off himself and he put it on David. But even if he would have set aside the crown, it would have caused such chaos to have the crown prince of Israel refused the crown that God just knew it was better to bring Jonathan home to glory. So to avoid that mess, and I'm not saying that the mess would have been caused by Jonathan, but by others in Israel, I think for that reason, that's why uh, God, so to speak, took Jonathan home, and may I say, took him home gloriously 
because he died as a great man, as a brave man, as a loyal man in battle, defending the cause of God. And now, before I go on to the next question, let me just say one more time here for the sake of our giveaway. You got about 10 more minutes to tell us where you're from. And of course, we have your screen name. You got to enter it into the side chat. If you're watching in our TWR360 audience, you're going to have to make it over to the YouTube channel and write in our side chat. We need to know, of course, your screen name, which is being there just from the chat. But we also need to know where you're from. The country, state, city, doesn't matter. Don't give us your address. Not yet. You're going to have to stay around to the very end of our time because we've got about 10 more minutes. Then our wonderful team, Annie, I think is going to get to work on this one. She's going to take all the entries, put them into a random name generator, and generate one name randomly selected from all the entries today, and somebody's going to get this book mailed to them. And I'll say one more thing. This giveaway is open to our international audience as well. As long as you can give us a valid postal address, this is open to you. And look, to be honest, it's going to cost us like $100 to send this overseas but what we're celebrating is our 100,000th YouTube subscriber. That's a mark we reached last Saturday. It was kind of fun. Sat around. Uh, some of our team was sitting around and looking at the counter. Get up to 99,998. Pretty soon it clicked over, over 100,000. Then actually a few people unsubscribed and it dipped over under 100,000 just for a few minutes. Then it went back above and it's been above ever since. So uh, in celebration of our 100,000th YouTube subscriber, uh, we are happily, joyfully giving away this wonderful book, Story of My Life, William Taylor, Bishop of Africa. All right, on to the other questions now. Sean asked this question, should we go by the Hebrew or the Septuagint regarding the height of Goliath? Sean, I don't remember what the discrepancy is, so I really can't give you a categorical answer on that, because I would want to know if there is any additional reason. Okay, if all we had was uh, there it is, either the Septuagint or the Hebrew, one or the other, I, I would take the Hebrew. But there's often other textual issues involved. This manuscript says something different. This rabbinic tradition speaks to it this way. You know, some other thing, you know, this extra biblical source has this. So if it's just a matter of the Septuagint or the Hebrew manuscript, I would always start out favoring the Hebrew manuscript, but I would also want to know what those other factors are and judge everything by a case-by-case -case basis. Look, I think that in judging manuscript problems, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, it's really important just to take them on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, there's not one manuscript that is always correct in every case or manuscript tradition uh, it's best to, to look at them both and look at all the sources, all the discrepancies, and sort it out from there. So that's the best. I, 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 not knowing enough about that specific one, I'm just giving you the principle on which I would decide it. Thank you, Sean. Next question comes from Horatio, who asks, why in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, 
does Saul know who David is? And in chapter 17, he does not. One, when he plays the harp for him, and the other in the battle with Goliath. Okay, Horatio, I've heard a couple explanations for this, and I think that these could be plausible, or maybe there's an explanation that we just haven't been suggested. You know, sometimes real life isn't as neat and understandable as the records that come out from it. Um, So, you can say, well, how could that happen? Well, things just happen in real life. But let me give you two possible explanations. One is that when David played for King Saul, Saul didn't really know who he was. David even could have been hidden behind a curtain. Any meeting he had with Saul face-to-face could have been very fleeting. Saul was also somewhat disturbed at the time. So to me, it's not crazy to think that even though David was in Saul's presence, even though he certainly would have had some contact with him, that it just wouldn't have registered for a man who was a king, number one, had a lot going on, number two, and was disturbed, those reasons. The other thing is this. In the 1 Samuel 17 account, when Saul asked, who is this young man? It's as much asking about his family as anything else. Now, please remember that part of the promise that Saul had made for the man who kills Goliath is that you're going to get to marry the king's daughter, which we would admit is a big deal. You marry into the royal family. So, Saul very much could have just been asking, okay, I've seen this guy before. I know something of him. I don't know a lot about him. What family does he come from? Who is this guy? Give me more background because my daughter, I promised to have her available for him to marry. So that's the best way I would explain it, Horatio. Uh, Could have been a problem with recognition back in the earlier mention. What is that? Uh, First Samuel chapter 16. But then chapter 17, the emphasis of Saul's inquiry is more on the family background of David. Okay, next question from Janine Leroux asks, are all trials and tribulations a test of faith from God? Or are some of the hardships endured just a part of the broken world we live in and God allows for it to happen? Yes, Janine, I would say that's true. A a hardship doesn't have to be expressly from the hand of God to test us, yet God will still use every hardship to train us. Even things that come to us as just sort of being a result of our fallen world. Now, when I say that, I'm not trying to imply that such a hardship could come to a believer without God's knowledge or without God's approval. You yourself mentioned God allows it to happen. Even in the allowing, God has a purpose. So, there are some things that God directly does, obviously. There are other things that God um, allows to happen. And you could say that God is still behind it. Of course he is, because there's nothing that happens in the entire universe unless God wants it to happen. We get that, right? That's, that's just what it means to be God. Nothing happens in the entire universe unless God wants it to happen. It doesn't mean that God does everything directly by his hand, but at the very least, he has allowed it. And even 
in what he allows, there's purpose behind it. Now, maybe we can't understand the purpose. Maybe we can't discern it. Maybe it's, but there's something that God wants to do in it. Maybe just to show us faithful in the little things that seem to be purposeless. God wants to show something in it. Okay, we've just got a few minutes left here on our giveaway. So you got a few more minutes until we end the uh, drawing. I need to go over and take a look at here from the excellent document our staff has provided for me. Annie did a great job with this. So, um, yeah, at some time soon, our moderator, Devin, is going to announce when the submissions are closed. I don't know. I don't think that's happened yet, but it's going to happen soon. If you want to be entered into our random drawing for this book, you need to enter in soon. Okay, next question comes from Diana, who asks, I'm a divorced woman who hasn't been to church in 20 years because of my guilt. Do you think God can still use me in a church? I'm a Christian, and I used to be very active in my church. Diana, your question touches me very deeply. Diana, I can assure you, Jesus Christ wants to free you from this guilt. Now, Diana, I know nothing of the circumstances of your divorce. Absolutely nothing. But but I'm going to pretend. Again, I'm just pretending here. I'm going to pretend that you were completely to blame for the divorce. You broke the bonds of marriage. You wanted to break it up. It was all your fault. There was no reason for it. You just went, okay, on and on. Let's just pretend that you were completely at fault. There's still forgiveness for the repentant sinner, Diana. I, I think it's probably likely that you weren't entirely at fault. And I'm not here to judge that one way or another. I'm just here to say that there's no reason for this sin. I'm sure that in your divorce, in some ways you sinned, most likely, and in some ways you were sinned against. Take all of that. Take the guilt. Take whatever shame you feel. Bring it to Jesus and recognize that he died on the cross to free you from that guilt and that shame. Diana, I want you to know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for your sins and he paid for all your sins, all of them. There's no sins that he did not pay for. Now, if Jesus paid for all your sins, then what sins still hang over your head? I would say none of them. Remember this promise from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, please listen, Diana, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dan, I want you to go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. I want you to read it. I want you to memorize it. I want you to say it to yourself 10 times a day. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Diana, if on a YouTube chat, you can confess your sin, I'm imagining you've already confessed your sin to God. 
if for some reason you have it, then just do it. Just be honest. Don't hold anything back. Just tell God every sin possible associated in the matter and receive the beautiful cleansing and forgiveness that Jesus Christ can bring. And Diana, look, I can't speak for the church that you might go to, but if I was pastoring a church, I'd be happy to have you serve in some capacity. People who have repented of sin that they committed 20 years ago and have lived lives honoring to the Lord, they are more than welcome to serve and to honor God. So that's what I would encourage you with, Diana. God bless you, dear sister. And then here, uh, a question from Dan, who says, what would you do with a worn out Bible that's falling apart and missing pages? I know people that fret about what to do. All right, Dan. All right, this is a little bit of a tough question because we do want to be respectful of the Bible. It's due respect, of course, but we don't want to be superstitious. This leather binding, very nice Bible, by the way, this leather Bible, these pages, um, this ink, this paper, it's not magical. Now, the word contained in the Bible. That is not magical, but it is spiritually powerful. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. But that's not the, the book itself. So I would put it this way, Dan. Do according to your conscience. That's really the best way I would say since the Bible gives us no firm direction on this, do according to your conscience. If your conscience tells you, um, I'm just going to, I can't use it anymore because too many pages are missing. I'm just going to leave it on a shelf and let it sit. Fine. I have heard of people who bury Bibles uh, because they... Uh, they want to give it sort of a respect. <laughs> they treat it like something that's living, like a body. And so, they're, okay, I'm not going to burn it. I'm not going to throw it in the trash. I'm going to uh, bury it. I've heard of people who do that. But then I've also know of people that have said, you know, they've got an old New Testament that's battered and worn and has done its service. And they, they would toss it and they would just say, look, I'm not going to be superstitious about the cover and the pages and the ink. It's the word of God that has power, that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged uh, sword. So that's the way I would explain it, Dan, just in those particular terms. Do as your conscience pray about it. I mean, obviously, it's something that, that's, uh, you know, bothering you, so to speak. Pray about it. And I, I would give you those three options. Leave it on a shelf, bury it, or you could toss it. But again, be persuaded in your own conscience because the scriptures themselves don't tell us what to do with the ink and the uh, cover, the, the actual ink and paper of a Bible. Okay, friends, I got big news. I've got a winner to announce Susan from Ontario, Canada. You are our winner. Now, Susan, it's going to be very important 
for you to email us. Devin is going to give you the uh, email address. It's ewm at enduringword.com. Make contact with us in the live chat. Uh, we will collect the mailing address and we will ship out this wonderful book to you. I hope you enjoy it. And you know what? Uh, it's a little bit interesting here, Susan. You're from Canada. Well, William Taylor got his call to go to Australia and begin his foreign work, so to speak, from Canada as he was visiting a medical doctor in Canada. So uh, how fitting that it's a Canadian viewer who is going to receive this book, providing, Susan, you're going to have to send us your postal address by email. Look at the live chat and Devin will get that email address. Well, then that's about it. I want to congratulate Susan. I want to say thank you to all our subscribers. Hey, there's 100,000 of you out there. Well, a little bit more now, almost 101,000. So, um, yeah, I get notice here that Susan's in the live chat. We got the thing. Great, Susan. So you are going to get this book. I will send it to you by mail uh, myself, and you'll get it, I don't know, whenever it takes you. How do they get things to Canada? They send them on a dog sled or something like that? I don't know. It's, that's our Canadian viewers. We'll be able to figure that one out. And I do just want to say that if you're watching this on a recorded version, there is no giveaway. We already did it. Susan already won it. We're glad that you're watching this on a recorded version, but there's really nothing there because we've already, this has just been for our live audience. So friends, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a wonderful day today. I wish you God's best. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support of the ministry that we do at Enduring Word. If you need Bible resources, go to EnduringWord.com. And there's an absolutely free commentary that I think will be helpful for some people, maybe not everybody, but some people. And thank you for your prayers and your time with us today. God bless you, and we will see you again next week. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.